Welcome back to another episode of Best Hour of Their Day. Trying to take this podcast to the next level. Got some intro music behind me today. Let me know what you think about that. But more importantly, I'm super excited to be bringing to you this interview with Adrian Bosman. Most of you know him as Boz, and he, this was phenomenal. Boz has not been on many podcasts, so to hear his story is going to be not just inspiring, but also entertaining as hell. Boz, we talked after the show, he rambled. He rambled a bit, but I told him no one rambles better than he does because, man, those ramblings were priceless. The dude is so smart. He is such a smart dude. And here's where we're going with this. We talk about the things that people know about, the fact that he was in the circus, the fact that he had a cold shower challenge with my buddy David Asario, who was on a few episodes ago. But we're going to talk about how he found CrossFit, how he went from being somebody that did his first CrossFit workout, the three bars of death, to coaching for Kelly Starrett at San Francisco CrossFit, to ultimately becoming not just a part of the level one seminar staff, but an integral part and a flow master. And then ultimately, the way that a lot of you recognize Boz as the head judge of the CrossFit Games, we talk about that, how by just showing up places consistently, doing the work, you get these great opportunities. And that's really Boz's story. Hard work pays off. So check out this. We talk about his advice for new coaches and the biggest mistake coaches make and what keeps him motivated to continue to train. I've done a lot of interviews so far for Best Hour of Their Day and Boz was definitely one of my favorites. I'm excited to share it with you. I think you're going to learn a tremendous amount about this unique, entertaining individual, Adrian Bosman. So I couldn't be more excited to bring it to you. Here it comes. Up next, Adrian Bosman on the best hour of their day. All right, I'm here with Adrian Bosman on best hour of their day. Welcome, Boz. Thanks for having me, Jason. So you don't need much of an introduction, but if I were going to introduce you, I would say he's a man known for taking cold showers. <laughs> um, well, don't well. ask David Osorio about that. <laughs> well, people, people probably know you from being the head judge at the CrossFit Games, but you are also one of the best coaches in the world. Like literally one of the best. I was just telling you, oh, I was chatting with E.C. Sinkowski and she said you were the most important in her coaching development. So that's pretty important because we both admire EC. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I don't know what to say about that. That's a, a huge honor for me because I have the utmost respect for EC. I think she's, she's awesome, man. She's one of the smartest people and uh, most hardworking people that I've ever met and worked with. So that's, that's a huge compliment. Well, I, I do want to get into more serious things, but tell me about these cold showers. Are you not doing them anymore? Um, you know, it's funny, it's sporadic. So David and I were doing this cold shower thing for a while. Uh, geez, man, it started a while back now, a year or two ago. And uh, I actually got him into it initially. And we challenged each other to see who could, who could do it the longest. And uh, I think I made it to definitely over a year. Every day for a year, cold shower only. And for a long time, it was right out of bed. So first thing in the morning, no matter what you're doing, cold shower first and then go about your day. And uh, after, I can't remember exactly how long I lasted, but a year or so, I was like, yeah, I don't need to do this as much anymore. And David's still going. I think he just passed like day 500 or something. So he's, he's insane. <laughs> so you didn't take one hot shower in all of that time? Correct. Did you miss, like, what was it like taking your first hot shower again? Um, I don't know. I did. I guess I didn't even think about it. I mean, you, it's like not eating your favorite food and then having it, you'd be like, oh, this is amazing all of a sudden. You, you yeah, forget what yes, you're missing I mean, out. I don't know. I mean, you know, I still had, uh, like, every once in a while, I'd take a hot bath or, like, do a hot tub or something like that, you know, if the opportunity presented itself. But it, I honestly didn't think about it that, that much. I, I actually take a cold shower first thing every morning, Monday through Friday, most days. Yeah. 
quickly, like 30 seconds. And sure. um, I am fearing it every morning until I'm done with it. <laughs> How long like, have you done it for? It's been about six weeks, I'd say. Okay. Yeah, but I just, after a while, it just became like, it was so routine that, yeah, it still sucked and it was jarring a lot of the time, but you just did it. So, so I, have a, I wrote a couple other things about you that maybe not everybody knows. One, okay. you were in a circus. Sort of. I, I was never actually in the circus. That's a kind of a common misconception. I trained uh, circus arts at the San Francisco School of Circus Arts way back. I mean, that, man, that was a lifetime ago now. That was 2003. Um, yeah, so I trained there for a few years uh, doing some various different acrobatics and things like that, some flying trapeze. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a long time ago now. Do you think that helped your CrossFit career? Um, yeah, I mean, I think as much as anything else, I grew up doing gymnastics and a lot of, a lot of sports that kind of relied on body awareness, you know, like I rock climbed a lot and I used to mountain bike with my brother a lot and, uh, ski and things like that. And I think any, anything that forces body awareness like that is going to be a pretty good platform to start doing CrossFit from. So yeah, absolutely. You're out on the West coast and you mentioned you rock climb. Did you see free solo? I did. Yeah. I just watched it uh, a couple weeks ago, actually, man. What? It's, it's an amazing story. Is that, I've heard him being interviewed on a couple other podcasts and he talks about it like, it's no big deal because you know, I was trying to talk to somebody about it. It would be like, Boz, you have to do 50 thrusters at 65 pounds with your eyes. Like, no problem. You're so good at yeah. that. But still, there's no risk of death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know what to say about that guy. I think he's just living on another planet compared to most people. And I understand what he's saying about, you know, I guess your assumed risk goes down as your level of competency goes up or whatever. But... Man, from the outside looking in, it's a pretty extreme thing. Okay, I have two more little known facts. And okay. they're probably not that. So not everybody knows you were at one point Canadian. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess if you count where you're born, you're always kind of there, right? So, uh, yeah, I, I was born in Canada, um, you know, so Canadian by birth. I uh, got my citizenship to the United States two years ago. But I've been living here for 15 years. Right, so you're a full-blown citizen, Yep. You can vote in the presidential election now? Yep. All right, we won't get into politics on this. Tw yeah, 2020 will be my first opportunity to do that. I just missed the, uh, I, I was uh, sworn in as a citizen in 2017, so I missed the 2016 election. So you could have really had a big impact on- who I know, definitely, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, last one, and this may be very little known. I know this, I, I've asked you this, it's very- Intriguing to me. Okay. You and you and your wife were married with spider rings. Sort of, yeah. So when my wife and I got married, we got married pretty quickly after we met. Uh, we got married in 2004. We had met in 2003. Just a little before a year of knowing one another, we got married. Um, we've been, it'll be 15 years in September that we've been married. And at the time, we didn't have uh, you know, a lot of money in the bank account. And I had a huge family doing and planning a wedding just didn't seem like it was going to be uh, in the cards. So we ended up eloping. And um, after we got married uh, via eloping, uh, we went to this little pub down in Encinitas and they had, you know, those little Cracker Jack machines or whatever that you put a quarter and you turn the crank. And that's what we got our wedding rings out of and one of them was like a plastic spider that was the one that i gave to my wife and she still has it doesn't wear it daily but uh you know <laughs> and and i've you know we've, i upgraded the ring uh when i was able uh years later so yeah but she still has it well the the two major topics when i asked what people want to know about boz is obviously your involvement in the games but also your involvement just as a as a crossfit coach so how did you go from some hippie rock climber, circus <laughs> guy, to becoming one of the most well-known CrossFit coaches in the world? What was the first and step? That's a great question. You know, the first step was just being really into it. I can remember being, uh, like I was just leaving for college. I was 17 at the time, 
just about to turn 18. And I made kettlebells out of concrete and um, heavy grade heater hose because they were unavailable anywhere else. And I was really fired up on um, actually all the old like Pavel Satsulin stuff from way back in the day. Uh, I was really into that stuff. Couldn't find it. So I just improvised and made it on my own. And, and I really, ever since then, have had a real interest in physical culture and a lot of different expressions of that. And it was just something that I was going to be doing anyway. Uh, you know, it wasn't even a choice. It was just something that, that I had to pursue. And uh, so at that point, it was just a personal hobby. Uh, I didn't have any aspirations to teach other people. I didn't even know that people taught other people fitness. Like that wasn't even on my radar. Flash forward a couple of years, I finished up with um, school and I moved to San Francisco just for a change of scenery. I didn't expect to, to be there very long. I'd only planned to come down for about a year. And at the time I was training at the circus school that we were talking about earlier. And I still did a lot of things that most circus performers at that time were. It was kind of taboo. Like I lifted weights and I did things that most people would tell you were a bad idea uh, because they were uninformed. You know, it was the old, oh, lift, lifting weights is going to make you muscle bound and, and, you know, unathletic and these kind of myths that it held over from the 1950s, basically. But at the same time, I was better conditioned and, and stronger than most of the people that I was training with. And it was this weird situation where they refused to want to reconcile the fact that I had these abilities and I trained in this way. They didn't want to connect the dots that it was because I trained this way that I had these abilities. It was some innate thing in their mind. And I was like, no, it's, it's not at all. I'm not a natural athlete, like by any stretch. It's because I taught myself to build these attributes. And so I started teaching uh, other people. I led a little class. Um, it was just an informal group, really. It started off with uh, uh, a couple people that wanted me to show them some, some things that they could do outside of the circus school to, to train. And uh, so we had a little workout group and I was the one that was responsible for putting it together, putting the workouts together and teaching people how to do basic things. And um, my run, one friend, Lauren, she said, hey, you know, you should be a personal trainer. You're really good at instructing. And at that point, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, how do you, how do you even do that? Like, I didn't, it, it wasn't even in my conception that that was a job that people did. So she really encouraged me. And I ended up uh, sitting for my um, ACE certification uh, way back in the day. I had, I had uh, my ACE as well. Yep. I remember ACE. Yeah. <laughs> so I did that. I actually had to catch a Greyhound bus to LA from San Francisco because the, there wasn't a test offered in San Francisco at that time. So I caught a Greyhound bus down to LA, sat for my test, passed my test, got my little personal trainer ticket. And then I started working at a uh, Bally Total Fitness uh, in two, 2004. And actually, kind of a funny story, this all kind of interconnects. Um, Diane Fu, who a lot of people know, uh, she does Fu Barbell. She's a great Olympic lifting coach. Um, Diane was, at that time, the uh, training manager at the Bally Total Fitness that I got hired at. She interviewed me and hired me. Then years later, when I left to uh, work at San Francisco CrossFit with Kelly, uh, this is 2006. Um, Diane ended up coming with us after that and coaching for us. So it's kind of cool to do that full circle thing. But yeah, it was really just one of those things where I, um, I, I couldn't not do it. It was something that I was really interested in on a personal level. Um, I was really interested in anybody that wanted to do it with me. I was more than happy to like show what I knew as basic as it was at the time. And out of that, I was just encouraged to instruct because my friends around me said I was good at it. And, and so I did. Uh, and that was it, really. So for those listening and you complain you have to travel far to take your level one, Boz took a, a bus six hours to take his ACE Dude, test. That Greyhound bus, it's a six-hour drive to L.A. That Greyhound bus is like 13 hours. They are not fast. <laughs> I remember that because I lived, I had to go to New York City to take mine. Like it was only yeah. kind of like Columbia University, and um, yeah, it was. So you think you're being put out to take your level one, which are happening <laughs> all over the world these days? No, uh, it's not really. quite. So, you, and then you mentioned Kelly. Those not listening, yep. you're referring to Kelly Starrett, San yep. Francisco CrossFit. So you, you make your way over there, 
there's some great old videos of you guys like training on under a canopy yeah. at San Francisco CrossFit. How did I've heard you tell the story like you you were just a great personal trainer and and you go there and all of a sudden you're coaching group classes. Yeah, pretty much. So uh, you know, I was personal training at the time. Um, I had stumbled across the CrossFit website. I was still working at Bally Total Fitness, um, but I was, you know, as soon as I fell into the CrossFit world, I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. I started training all my clients in a CrossFit style. Um, I saved up as much money as quickly as I could to go do my level one. Um, did you do it back in the day when it was three days? I did. I was actually part of the last three-day level one seminar. And I didn't know this at the time, but I came to find out years later that it was the same level one that uh, both Pat Sherwood and Dave Castro were at. So that was kind of cool. Um, that so you guys I were all, again, all participants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I didn't know that until years later, but you know, we were all sitting around over time talking about when we did our level one and finally it was like, well, wait a minute, hold on. I think that's when I did mine. And sure enough, that, that was the case. But uh, yeah, so I did my level one. Uh, with a friend of mine in the city who we used to get together. Uh, shout out to Sean Pizel if you're out there. Great guy. Uh, he and I used to get together and do CrossFit in the park together with whatever we had uh, equipment-wise. And he and I drove down to Santa Cruz to do our level one together. And he found um, Kelly doing CrossFit in the very, very early stages of San Francisco CrossFit. So my friend Sean calls me up and says, hey, there's this guy, Kelly. He's starting a uh, CrossFit in San Francisco. We should go check him out. But it never worked out for my schedule for, for quite a while because at that time, the classes that Kelly offered were really, really few and far between. I think it was one class a day, and he alternated morning, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and evening, Tuesday, Thursday. And those were the prime personal training hours, and I just couldn't get out there. So anyway, long story short, I finally get out there. I meet Kelly. We hit it off. Um, we kept in contact, and I'd try to go out there as often as I could to hang out with him. And a couple weeks later, I get this email from him, and he says, hey, uh, I'm going out of town. I'm going to be gone for, I forget what it was, a week or whatever. I don't know anybody else that can do this, but can you run classes for me while I'm away? And it was kind of out of the blue. And I, I, you know, I was like, yeah, of course, absolutely. So I did. And I ran all the classes uh, during that week. And um, I guess I didn't uh, blow it too badly because when he came back, he said, hey, look, I've been running this on my own. At the time, he was still in school and he was looking to, you know, make a, a better offering for the people that were coming through. And he asked if I wanted to be a part of it. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so I started training there. Um, full-time. I, I left Bally Fitness, uh, Bally Total Fitness, as, as quick as I could get out of there, and uh, jumped in full-time at San Francisco CrossFit. And I was there from 2006 uh, in the springtime until uh, 2011. So I coached there for five years. All right. So three quick questions on everything you just said. One, yeah. do you remember if you beat Dave in the workout at the level one? Oh, I have no idea. It was a huge <laughs> seminar. There was there were so many people there, and we, I mean, this is the early days, the three day seminars. We worked out so many times. I know. I I've heard like <laughs> the stories that they were just beat downs. Coach was just like, oh, "We're beating you it down." Was, it was ruthless. I mean, I remember coming home and just being wrecked. Uh, you know, my wife was like, "Well, how was it?" I was like, "I it was awesome, but I'm going to bed. Like I'm just destroyed." Second question on all this was. Do you remember your very first CrossFit workout? Um, I don't. I don't remember my very... Oh, wait. Oh, no, that's not true. I do. Uh, my very first, like, officially from the main site, I'm going to do this start to finish no matter what was um, Linda or Three Bars of Death. That's a brutal... And, if you don't know any better, like, that's just... Yeah. And I remember I was, uh, I was actually doing some professional development. I was at a stretching seminar. I was working at the time still at Bally Total Fitness. Um, I had come to the East Bay, this little town called Walnut Creek, which is, uh, I don't know, about half an hour, 45 minutes east of San Francisco, uh, to do this stretching clinic. And it was, it was useless, frankly, not a very good day, but I had to do it for continuing education. And so at the end of the day, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this workout. I had it all planned out. And so I went to the 
to the basement of the gym where they had the weights and I lined it up and I did this thing and I have no idea how long it took me. You know, I'm sure it was a glacial age. And at the end of it, I was so wrecked that I couldn't ride my motorcycle back home. Like I got, I got all my gear on, I got on my bike and I was like, I can't, this is a bad idea. And so I had to get off my bike and like go get something to eat and chill out for an hour or two before I was brave enough to get back on my bike and leave. So yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> I think Linda's like one of those good, you've made it if you can do it RX workout. Oh man. Yeah. You know? And I'm sure at the time that it was not RX and you know, it was, yeah, it was rough. But yeah. after that, it was, it was, it, it was exactly what, uh, I wanted out of fitness, you know, I, I, to me, I think the whole idea of being a generalist is just super appealing. Um, not just in the physical aspect, but in, in a lot of ways, I think it matches up nicely with what I'd like my life philosophy to be. You know, um, I think people should have breadth and they should be comfortable in a lot of different situations and they should have the ability to adapt and, and all of that. So it really, yeah, it really bit me. So my last question along your first story there was, do you remember the first workout you had to coach? Cause that could be. No, that, scary. that I don't. Uh, I mean, no. And again, like that so many of the workouts that I did when I was leading that little group at the circus school, they had like elements of CrossFit, but they were, I mean, they weren't really well thought out and they weren't really as, as uh, potent or succinct. Um, and then even in the early days of San Francisco CrossFit, I mean, you know, we, we experimented with a lot of stuff and it took us a while to really dial in like, okay, what are we doing here? And, you know, it's the classic mistakes. We'd try to, we try to do way too much in a session, or you just have like these workouts that were just kitchen sink style, everything. So I, I don't, I don't recall exactly the first one. Uh, I mean, I can remember some really long drawn out ones, but I don't remember the movements or the rep schemes or anything. Just like, oh yeah, that was like way too, way too much. You know? So even two of <laughs> the best of in the early days, for sure. Even two of the best were making mistakes. So. Oh man. Know, yeah. I mean, it, there's a learning curve for sure. You know, in, in 2019, we know you're a flow master on the CrossFit staff. I believe other than Chuck Carswell, you've done the most level one slash level two seminars. I don't know if that's there. true anymore. I, I, I know I'm up there, um, but uh, you know, honestly, I haven't been working seminars for the last year. Uh, I've been, you know, my role has changed to be more kind of behind the scenes. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, I've done a lot, but I, I don't know that I'm number two. Chuck is definitely a, the man. He's leading the way. He's about at 500 from what I understand. Yeah, that's crazy. But oh, man. My, my question is, you know, you, this is 2006. How do you go from, I found this, I'm coaching it now, to being a part of this seminar crew? Because a lot of people listening to this, their end goal, that is something I hear a lot. I, my goal in life is to be, you know, wearing this red shirt, be a part of staff. What was your journey like? Yeah, um, I guess the, my immediate thought is it's interesting that that's a goal that people can have because at the time there was no such thing. So that wasn't a goal that was to be had. Uh, it just didn't exist. And um, in a lot of ways, I feel like that's a good thing. Sometimes I feel that people get so, I don't know, they get so uh, uh, hung up on one particular outcome or one expected end state that they forget that there's way too many other opportunities to express that thing that you wanted to do anyway. Uh, so I guess my story kind of exemplifies that in a way, uh, you know, I was working with Kelly at San Francisco CrossFit. He had been doing some work with the level one staff at that time. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have a really good relationship with CrossFit HQ. And, you know, at that point, the affiliate community was so small. I mean, I think we were in the first 50 affiliates, you know, and at that point when, when we started getting to like 75 and hundred affiliates, we'd look at each other. We're like, wow the cat's out of the bag. This is everywhere now. You know, we had no idea the scope of, of how big things could get. Um, so anyway, you know, uh, the seminar, uh, offering was growing at the time. They were just doing them like, man, I think there was like one seminar a month and that's it. 
And they were looking to build that obviously, and they needed instructional staff. And I had the good fortune of knowing some of the people like Nicole and Annie Sakamoto and coach and all the, the old schoolers. And so they asked me if I'd like to come help out uh, at a couple of seminars and I did. And, you know, there was no mention of this being a long-term thing or a, or a job or something that you could even get paid for. It was just, Hey, would you like to come and help us out? And it was like, you know, the answer was absolutely. This would be awesome. Awesome to learn from those people. Awesome to be in that environment. You know, it's hugely motivating to, to know that there were people that were interested in this stuff because in those days you still were, very much on your own little island a lot of the time. It just wasn't prevalent. So I did a, a couple of those where I was helping out um, and then eventually got to the point where they, you know, asked me if I'd show up and then they paid me for it. And I mean, it's kind of a shock to be honest. They're like, yeah, we're going to pay you to show up. I said, great. <laughs> awesome. And uh, kept doing that until eventually in 2008, um, I remember that was the year that I started gaining a lot of responsibility really quickly uh, because the seminar team was expanding really fast at that time. So that's when I ran my first seminars on my own. Um, that's when I you know, started doing more of the Flowmaster role, et cetera. But it really was just being available and being willing to show up and do it and not have a lot of expectation on the outcome. It was something that I was doing anyway in the local box and I just had the opportunity to uh and the opportunity and the uh, the skill set I believe um to do it on a bigger platform so yeah it was it was really organic in those days you know I, I've read books in the past that are like everything I need to know I learned from Star Wars or like things like that sure. and I think you can say a lot about that with the level one staff like everything you're sure. saying it's like show up give it your all you know don't do it yeah. for the pay and yep. if people do more things like that, they would realize, you know, that, that there's a lot of opportunity out there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sometimes I think it's not where you expect it, you know, or not where you think the end state should be. I had no idea that that was something that I could do as a profession or that there was somewhere to end up in. Um, and yet here we are, you know, 13, 14 years later. You know, you told me at the time, hey, this is going to be something that you do in full time. I'd be like, you're crazy. What do you, what do you mean? <laughs> well, you know, you may not be as many as Chuck Carswell these days, but you've probably worked over 300 seminars, which, you know, when you, when you do the math, it's like tens of thousands of people and weekends and weekends on, on the road. I get, we get asked almost every weekend we work, do you love it? And it's like, I can't wait to be here Saturday at 8 a.m., Getting here Friday, not so much, you know, but once I'm here, like it's the best thing in the world. You yeah, know, and I think the 200 or so people on staff would continue to do without getting paid. You know, don't tell the higher ups that <laughs> I think they know that already. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a real, it's, it's a great, great gig. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I mean, man, it's, it's amazing to see the impact that you do have. Um, I, I feel really lucky to have been a part of it. I can look at so many places that I've been that I absolutely would not have gone otherwise. I can think of so many people that I would have met, or sorry, would not have met that I that I now count as you know close friends, and it's a pretty cool thing. What was your favorite seminar? Like what location? Oh man, uh, I don't know. I don't. It's hard to narrow down to one, but I always like going places that I'd never been before. Um, whether that was you know domestically or internationally uh you know some of the more exotic places like singapore is super cool um sweden i love sweden um i you know any any chance i get to go to places like that was always great but i had some really really great times in less kind of uh assuming or, or more unassuming places too like i remember one time todd whitman and i went out to the main state police academy and we got to put on the dog suit and have the German Shepherd come charging at us. You know, those guys took us out to this huge um, uh, lobster bake at the at at the lake. You know, one of the one of the officers there had a lake house that they took us out to, and they treated us so well. And I mean, so many cool experiences like that. Um, it, I think it I was would be impossible to narrow it down. I took a level one there back Vallisboro, right, Maine. Yeah, at the uh, academy there. Yeah, I, I took 
I took like four or five level ones before I was on staff. Like I just kept coming back and that was like my second or third. I remember that place was really good. Classroom, right? With the. Yeah, that's right. And then they had the the gymnasium downstairs. Yeah, we, yeah, it was a huge, we did like, that was a weekend we did. I remember we did fight gone bad back then. Okay. Um, Yep. So similar to your level one experience, the games was no different, right? You kind of show up accidentally, get put in this, role and now here you are you know, 11 years later so what yep. what was that like did you show up in Aromas was Dave just like hey we need a judge yeah pretty much so um hold on my phone just said low power mode I'm just gonna plug it in here real quick uh so 2007 the first CrossFit competition is gonna happen they had sent out a flyer they're like hey it's gonna be at Dave's ranch you know this is what's going to happen. And, um, it, it was pretty small at that point. And so I don't remember what Kim and I had going on, but we were unable to make that weekend. And, and honestly, at the time we didn't think much of it. It was like, Oh yeah. Okay, cool. Well, we're going to miss that, but no big deal. And it came and went, we saw some of the videos and we're like, Oh man, what a cool experience. You know, like that's really awesome that all these people came together and, and did this thing. We should go next year. And so then the next year rolls around and I'm working on the seminar team full time at that point. And, uh, you know, Dave, for whatever reason, Dave, Dave has always put a lot of faith in me, which I'm thankful for. And, uh, I show up and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to help out. So he put me in charge of one of the events that year. There were four events, three on the first day and then one final event on the, the Sunday and um, the three events on Saturday, you could do in any order that you wanted. They had like heats running throughout the day. And you just had to make sure that you at some point went through each one of the events. And I was at the deadlift burpee event. That was the one that I was to run. And so I did. I ran that, you know, for the day. And then at the end of the day, I would help Dave demo for the next day and whatever he needed. And uh, at the end of that competition, he was calling me his head judge. And I was like, okay, cool, you know? And it just kind of happened from there. And you can see more about this if you... So again, you know, it wasn't something that... Uh, I mean, it wasn't even a position that I think we knew we needed. And, uh, you know, it was such a, uh, a raw time. And looking back on it, you're like, well, how could you not know that, that that sort of thing had to happen? But, you know, we weren't even there. So yeah, it was really, again, really organic. That, that's really cool. People can, you can watch those every second counts. I'm yep. not sure if it's still on Netflix, but yeah, there was the deadlift burpee, like that yep. chest of our Fran. And I think it was like a one mile run. It was, I was shorter than that. It was like an 800. It was a uh, two loops of this pretty steep um, terrain at, at the ranch. And I think, I think it was less than if it was, if it was eight or 900 meters, I'd be shocked. Like it was not that far. And then the next day was the squat clean thruster yep. that jason kalipa one right that's right yep. so after 2008 did you just start coming back year after year as the head judge yeah so you know after 2008 it was clear that there was something there that was you know had a lot of potential people were interested in it and the plan was let's make it bigger and and do more with it and again i was working a lot with dave on the seminar team at that time so you know he and i had a really good friendship and working relationship and so as things were getting planned out he involved me a lot in those plans and and that was it you know in 2008 2009 did you ever expect it to become what it is in 2019 um you know those questions are always interesting and i think the answer is yes but not in the time frame in which it happened you know i think i think all of us in the early days knew that there was something there I mean, it was so infectious and that's all we wanted to do. And so it stands to reason that other people that got involved, that's all they wanted to do. And of course things would grow, but I think the time frame in which things really accelerated, you know, the years from, I would say probably 2008 to 2012 was pretty crazy how big things got and how fast they developed. You know, I remember the, going if, if we want to talk about the games the 2009 games the difference between that and 2010 when we were in the um, Home Depot Center for the first time I mean it was nuts I think every everybody involved at that point was like wow 
this is going to be big and a lot faster than we had anticipated. Yeah, 2009, you're still at the ranch. Annie Thor's daughter gets her first muscle-up with Chuck judging her. (laughs) Then the next year, you're on the tennis stadium, you know, broadcast. You know, I remember in 2008, hitting refresh on my computer to get the standings just to see who was in the lead, not to see anything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think they had, like, they had somebody with a blog that at the end of the day, they do, like, a recap, you know? (laughs) And then ultimately we have the sectionals, the regionals come about from that, but it was, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy to see just how far it came. And, you know, one of the coaches at the box I go to trains a lot of the teens he's coached and trained the guys that have won. I don't know all the teams like Dylan and these other guys. And I'm like, this is crazy because back in the day we would do this stuff to enhance our sport, you know, wrestling Mm -hmm, for me. We're now, you know, it really dawned on me and maybe it's a little late. It's like, wow, we saw a new sport come about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine, um, my buddy, Max, he comes over and works out with me uh, once in a while. And um, he, he's been doing CrossFit for a couple of years now, but you know, he's still, I wouldn't say he's new. He's really good, uh, but he's newer, you know, he's got a fresher perspective than I do certainly. And um, we were just talking about how, the culture at large is so different. You know, when I started CrossFit, if you found CrossFit, it was because you did something else obscure for the most part. You know, you were part of a a law enforcement agency that trained that way, or you did some, you know, you were an early adopter of like kettlebell sport, or you did Brazilian jiu-jitsu or something like that, that was already kind of a uh, obscure subculture. And then you found your way into CrossFit. And nowadays, it's just accepted that, well, if you go to a gym, any gym, it doesn't matter. You go to 24-hour fitness, yeah, there's still going to be a lot of hokey stuff that's going on, but you'll see people squatting and deadlifting. You'll see people, like, doing cleans. You'll see, you'll see a lot of that stuff. But in those days, that was totally unheard of. You know, like, you couldn't buy Olympic weightlifting shoes. There was, like, one dude that would sell them to you on some weird website, and, you know, he'd only have certain sizes at certain times, like, you know, bumper plates were impossible to find. You couldn't get gear. And now you have kids that have grown up and they never even had to go through that crappy bodybuilding buys and tries split, you know, like they just grew up doing power cleans and rope climbs and stuff. It's pretty mm-hmm. amazing. It's like the, when, I, when I was your age type of speech will be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's funny to be in that position where. And you it's, know, and, and it, you know, what else is really funny to me is to just see how, um, the attitude that people take when they're like, oh, well, you know, what impact has CrossFit really had? You know, people just, they, functional fitness is everywhere and, and, and they don't understand how not the case that was. You know, you turn the clock back 10 years and you go to, to most gyms and you do a snatch and people are going to look at you like you've got two heads. You know, it's, it's yeah, very different. And, so. and like you said, we're not talking, I remember 2006, 2007, you, people might think you're joking. Like I remember having a hard time and the weightlifting shoes I got were like the velvet, like I don't know, they're yeah. not velvet, but you know, like I forget. Yeah, the, no, I know exactly uh, the ones you're talking you about. You know, quirk on the bottom, yep. you know, Ripito. I was like messaging Ripito, like where can I get a belt? Um, yeah. yeah. And nowadays people go to the outlet, Reebok outlet yeah, to exactly, buy the weightlifting yeah. shoes. You can, you can get the weightlifting shoes to match whatever other gear you've got. You know, like that was, that's such a, I had red, ugly (laughs) shoes. They look like bowling shoes. That's the only way I can put it. Like they look like bowling. And I think that's part of, I think anyone on staff or who's been around for a long time gets very protective. And I get frustrated a little bit with the community at large that are bashing and whether it's about the pictures on the website or the games. And it's like, it's, it's come it's grown so fast and they don't know what it was like then you know seeing those pictures on the website the older guys you know they're married with children set like it's funny i get it like that's funny but to me that shows how far we've come that now my mom can see that website and be like oh i can do this right you know we're no longer this crazy subculture like you mentioned yeah, no, it, it is. So, you know, to get back to your original question, we, I tend to ramble. I, I like to speak and 
you know, when we're having ca casual conversation, it's fun to kind of take a circuitous route to get places. But going back to your original question, yeah, I think we all knew that it was really powerful stuff and that it had the potential to be really big. But I don't think any of us had the time frame right. I don't think, I don't think we anticipated how quickly things would catch on. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a new sport. There are people training, making a living, doing this sport. Yeah. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're still the head judge, right? This year it looks a yep. little bit different, but you're still going to be out in Madison, uh, you yep. know, walkie-talkie on, getting people ready? Yep, that's the plan. Do you, are you aware of the workouts coming? Can you tell us all the workouts no. right now? No, I don't, you know, and uh, I don't even have any information at this point. Dave just just recently started sending me an email or two with some cryptic details, but they weren't specific at all. It was just like very basic stuff. So I don't even have any good information should I want to share that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, but uh, yeah, it'll be a little bit different this year from what I understand. Um, you know, obviously there's been a lot of changes. But at the end of the day, it's still going to be an awesome event, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. You know, it's I think the way things changed were so rapid that obviously that can create I don't know a lot of a lot of different feelings in a lot of different people because of the speed, and you know people get attached to a certain way of of something being out there in the world, and then it changes on them, and obviously they're going to feel strongly about that. I think that's fine and, and normal. Uh, and because of the speed of the changes, I do think that 2019 will be a bit of an interesting year. You know, um, it'll, I think it'll take another season for the changes that, uh, that got put into place to really start to develop and mature into what they're ultimately going to look like. So I'm curious to see how 2019 plays out and obviously beyond. Um, but I do think that this year will be a little bit of a I don't know what the right word is. Um, transitional doesn't sound right because it, 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 I don't think it gives enough weight to to what will be, which will be a good event. It will be a good test, all of that. Uh, but I do think that come 2020, things will be a little bit more solidified in the new system. And, and that's when we'll really start to see it take off, you know? Yeah. That makes sense? Like it makes total sense. It makes total sense. and. You know, one thing we've always said, you know, be it as a judge or part of the regional crew is the fittest will be crowned. Yeah, you know, for sure. The fittest on earth will be determined. And I think it's one way I've always looked at it is like, I'm just getting to play with these guys. Like this is yep. their, I'm just, the CrossFit is a unique sport and that anyone in the world gets to participate. And because of that, they have this misinterpretation that their opinion matters when it comes right. to games, right? And it's like, you no, know, Matt Frazier, Tia, all those guys, they'll be there. The best will be there and the best yep. will win no matter what happens. Yep, I agree. And and especially at that at that level, I mean, man, they are all so good now that uh, I, it's not that it doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, you can obviously skew the event to the point where you could favor an athlete or whatever, but a lot of them are so good now that even if it's a sloppy event that's poorly planned and, and poorly executed, they'll still win. You know, now that obviously doesn't give you the excuse to not plan and, and execute poorly, but man, those guys are so good that I, I agree. I think the best will, will come out on top. So let's, let's take a trip back to coaching. Yeah. Someone's listening. They've attended their level one, you know, maybe they're even you know, at their level two. What's advice that you have for new coaches to continue to develop? People listen, they want to, they want to improve. You know, they, they do this because they love it. How can CrossFit coaches improve? Great question. I really think the answer is to always remember that the people that are in front of you do not have your level of experience or uh, your level of acclimatization to what you're doing. I think it's really easy when you're, coaching multiple athletes, multiple sessions a day, doing that every day, every week, you really start to fool yourself into thinking that the people around you have your level of experience and your level of understanding and your level of, of scrutiny around the movements that they're doing. And certainly they're going to pick up on a lot of that and certainly they're going to get a lot better. But man, it just comes back to that whole thing about fundamentals. 
you know, you have to have that foundation to work from. Otherwise, people aren't going to make long-term progress. So always coming at it at the perspective or with the perspective that, uh, you know, these people are at the level that they genuinely are, not at the level that I think they are or not at the level that I'm taking for granted because I've taught the squat eight times today and then five times this week. You know what I mean? Like you're talking to people that they're gonna come in, they're gonna learn a lift, they're not gonna do that lift for another couple of days at best, maybe a week or two at worst. They're not gonna have as much as you think. So always come back to those fundamentals and don't be afraid to really drill that stuff home. That doesn't mean that you can't challenge people. There's, you know, I can't think of a single athlete that, that it can just sidestep having to uh, uh, <coughs> work on the basics anymore and not be challenged by them. You know, there's ways to do that, but it's the same stuff. And at, at that, I don't know, it's, it's that age old thing at the point that you think you're beyond the basics, then you're probably either fooling yourself or not putting the work in that you should. What's Coach Glassman call that? The novice's curse? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. So without being redundant there, what's the biggest mistake people are making? What's the biggest mistake you can make when you try to become a better coach? Uh, doing too much all at once. Uh, doing too much too soon with people. Um, I, I was listening to some of the other episodes that you had on. And, uh, you know, the advice that other people were giving is, is right on the money trying to jam way too much into a single session. Um, I, I really think it's important that as a coach, you put yourself in the position of being a beginner in other areas, not so that you can learn a particular skill, although that is a nice byproduct, but so that you can remember what it's like to learn something with no prior knowledge of it. And it's always shocking how little you can retain in a single teaching session. You know, so for example, um, I recently started doing uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and it's been a lot of fun and it's really great to be put in the position where like, I know nothing, you know, I'm just like, I'm total scrub. I show up and my job is to just be the sponge, you know? Uh, and it's the same context though, you know, after learning two or three techniques in a 90 minute session, like that's all I've got, that's it. And more than that, like it's not gonna be retained. There's no way that I'm gonna take anything useful from that and move forward with it. I've already forgotten it before I left the door. So same thing, you know, people have a limit to what they can absorb and uptake. You have to respect that limit and still find a way to challenge it without overwhelming it. So too much too soon, I think is, is really it. Um, that's the biggest mistake I see time and time again. Have you rolled with Steve Haydock? No, not yet. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, ask Zach Forrest <laughs> how that goes. Um, yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we were in chicago steve is somebody you should have on your show by the way I'll, he is an awesome instructor i would love to talk to steve he steve yeah. is someone i highly respect he Me is too. the how do i say this he's the toughest person i've ever rolled with i've rolled with a lot of black belts yeah i would not want to roll with steve unless i had to wow he's awesome. that he's that good but he's that like oh it's crazy we were rolling with him and Zach Forrest. Zach Forrest is a regional, you know, level athlete. And yep. I think he broke his elbow. It was Zach's fault. Zach wouldn't tap. And <laughs> he just, and that was it. It was done. Oh, boy. So, it was Man, fun. Well, it was, but on the other end of that, like, Steve is an excellent CrossFit instructor. I, I've never done any jujitsu with him. I'm, I'm sure he's great at that, too. But uh, now he's one of the most well-spoken and clear instructors that I've ever been around. I think he's absolutely top-notch. It might just be the English accent, no? Yeah, it could be that too. It fools you into thinking he's sophisticated. No, he's very <laughs> smart. You, you and I know better, though. <laughs> what what um what keeps you motivated to improve as a coach these days? I mean, whether or not you're on the on the road as much as you used to be, I have no doubt you are still refining your craft after you know nearly 15 years as a CrossFit coach. What keeps you motivated? That's a good question. Uh, you know, honestly, my role has changed so much and I don't get the opportunity to coach nearly as much as I used to. And so these days I have um, a home gym, which is where I'm talking to you from now. 
And uh, I'll have some people that come over once in a while, um, try to get a couple times a week with some, some friends that are either newer to CrossFit or they've done CrossFit in the past, but they've stepped away from it because, you know, life, they had kids, they started businesses, whatever. And they just haven't had time to train. So I try to pull them back in. And uh, so I'm working with, with a lot of these guys that are new and or coming back to it. Uh, and it's really, really, I don't know what the word is, refreshing, good perspective to realize that the little bubble that we immerse ourselves in is really just that. And that most people still don't have a, a huge like knowledge of what CrossFit is. They still don't have a really great grasp of the basics. They're just busy people that are looking to live their lives a little bit better. And they need, um, they need somebody that can facilitate that for them. And I find that to be the most important thing. I'm, I'm, I'm really big on application. I think that technical knowledge and uh, really obscure um, movements and things like that, they're fun to play around with. But at the end of the day, if you can't apply it into something that will make somebody better today, then what good is it? You know, you're, you're just chipping away at the, the very, very finish of a sculpture. Um, what I find a lot more compelling is taking somebody who's still relatively unmolded and offering them those first big steps, you know? Um, so to me, that's the most motivating. And I think a lot about uh, this idea of time to proficiency. And so I was at a learning conference last year and they were talking about how, you know, there's all these different ways to approach teaching somebody a skill. But at the end of the day, there's very few methods that actually change the time it takes somebody to be proficient with that skill. So, you know, I might present really well, I might talk a good game, but at the end of the day, Jason, you're going to have to do X number of reps before something is any good. You know, it doesn't matter what my method is for the most part. Um, and so the question to me is how do I improve somebody's time to proficiency? And I really ultimately feel like a lot of that is stripping away some of the noise and peripheral that people may start to uh, latch onto that distracts them from those big building blocks. And so to me, that's, that's the motivating thing is how do I become the, I don't know, the filter between them and the quickest path forward. Does that make sense? Yeah. A good, a good coach eliminates those barriers, right? Makes it simple, makes it quick and gets them to their destination faster. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Who's been your biggest influence as a coach? Um, biggest influence. I don't know. That's, I don't know that I could narrow it down to one. Um, you know, Kelly was obviously huge back in the day, getting to work with him. He and I bounced so many ideas off of each other and experimented with so much stuff that I, I thought we were a really great compliment to one another back then. Um, you know, obviously he took a leap of faith in me hiring me so early on. So that was huge. So he's a huge influence. Um, Pat Sherwood was another one. I got to work with him quite a bit, uh, when I was coming up on the seminar staff and, uh, you know, his understated ability to explain things. I, I really took a lot away from that. I thought that was great. Um, Todd Whitman, obviously another one that I, you know, I got to work with Todd a lot in the early days. Um, I mean, a lot of those old schoolers, you know, really had a huge influence on me, but more and more, I think it's just, uh, getting the opportunity to be around so many high level people. I, I think as the game went on, it was less about one person or, or a group of people and, and more just the experience of getting to be involved with so many, you know what I mean? Like that was, it was such a great opportunity. No, as you were saying those names, you know, I, I mentioned this, I believe it was when I spoke to Austin or maybe it was Dave Osorio. Um, but when I speak to you guys, people that have been around and you name these influences, they're like these, it's like the Mount Rushmore of CrossFit coaches, <laughs> right? And, and it's, I don't know if you read the book, I, I quoted this book, Outliers from Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. It's like the same principle. It's like you became the best because you put yourself in that position. I think a lot of people listening need to do that. You're not going to become a great CrossFit coach by simply taking your level one and going back to your box and coaching. Right. You need to, EC just said it. She was like, go find other coaches, go, go 
visit them, go learn from them, go, you know, immerse yeah, yourself in that. Well, and, and I guess that's, uh, I think that's a really important attribute that a lot of people, for whatever reason, don't seem to value as much these days. I don't know if it's because everybody needs to be the expert in this Insta world that we live in these days. Um, and I know I've certainly fallen victim to this in the past, but, you know, having the humility to be around somebody that teaches something different than you or approaches something in a different way and not reacting immediately with right or wrong or better or worse than, but just starting to extract what you think you can add into your, uh, you know, coaching bag of tricks. I think that's a big one. Um, I don't know. It seems like there's always this competitiveness sometimes where a visiting coach goes into another gym and it's from both sides, you know, that the home gym feels like they really need to make a good showing and the, the visitor doesn't want to make themselves look like they're inexperienced or, or not knowledgeable or whatever, but both sides can benefit so much from that meeting that it's a shame. So yeah, having the humility to, to put yourself in with other people and, and not be afraid to bounce ideas off. You know, like when I came up, it was fortunate for me that things were still relatively unscripted. You know, things were not that set in stone. We were still very much experimenting with a lot of what would go on to be you know, basic protocols for how to run classes and, and do things in an affiliate. At that time, they just didn't exist. So in a way, it was a lot more free to be wrong. You know, now that things are more established, I think people don't give themselves the per permission to be wrong. And therefore, the exploration is stunted a little bit. And then that might be getting a little bit out there into, uh, you know, something that's less grounded. But I do think that that's a necessary mindset to, to be in if you're trying to move forward. You know, not allowing, not, not being afraid to allow yourself to be wrong, not being afraid to allow yourself to fail and, uh, and having the humility to put yourself in front of people that are going to know more than you or not, but you can still learn from. Yeah, and I think one thing yeah. all of you guys do well is keep it very simple. Yeah, yeah I think I think that's a, of primary importance. I really do. I, um, and again, I, especially like you think about what we're doing, we're trying to translate something intellectual into something physical, right? They're, they're two totally different worlds. You know, me describing the squat to you is never going to be accurate enough that it can replace the doing of the squat. It's, it's an impossibility. So yeah, it has to be simple because the experience is always more important than the discussion around the experience. I, I remember I was interning for staff and we were at Cross of Virtuosity and I was oh, in, yeah. running a group and I was struggling to get someone to open their hips in the push jerk. And uh, I didn't even realize you were there. And all of a sudden you kind of, <laughs> you emerged like from under the stairs, there was this set of stairs and you were yeah. like, hey, and you weren't rude about it. Like, you're like, let's just try this. And it was so simple. And this guy opens his hips. And I'm like, okay, that's how it's done. You know, and you put super simple, super, awesome. you know, yeah, that was really, it was important. It was a big learning moment for me. All right, last. Yeah. Well, and uh, let me, I mean, I'll, let me ramble some more, Jay. Hey, go for it. I love it. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I do think that that's another big part of coaching is, is, you know, it's easy to put yourself on this instructor role and you're leading the ship and, you know, you kind of convince yourself that in that leadership role, you have to be, I don't know, something you have to, it's like this built up thing. But a lot of times I think you, you have to be able to sidestep that and recognize that it's not about you you are the one that's trying to disseminate the information, sure, but it has to be about the person. And so whether or not your presentation is flashy or articulate or whatever, all those things can be helpful, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if that person is not reaping the benefit. So you have to be able to sidestep a little bit and, and realize that their experience is, is primary. Best hour of their day. Best hour of their day. Yeah, exactly. I, th Sorry, I think I cut you off. What was your? No, no. I think a lot of coaches need to to hear that it's not about you. 
you know, Fern and I spoke about that at the whiteboard brief. And it's like, if you're talking for more than five minutes, this is about you. Yep. And it's the same holds true with coaching. What's your favorite coach Glassman quote? Um, I've not asked anybody this before, but I think you will come up with a good one. Oh man. Uh, I don't know. The, the whole virtuosity, uh, you know, the curse of the beginner, the virtuosity piece was great. Um, I, my, I, my favorite story that's coming to mind is it's not exactly a quote, but my favorite story that he used to tell was when he first started working with like bigger groups of athletes and he had a basketball team that would come in in the evening and then a jujitsu club that would come in in the mornings and they didn't know that they were doing the same workouts. And then one time, like one of the basketball guys couldn't make the evening session. So he came into the morning session with all the jujitsu guys and he's like, hold on, wait a minute. This was the workout that my guys were doing in the last session. This is a basketball workout. And that was when the cat was kind of out of the bag that, you know, coach was like, no, no, no. This is just general physical preparation. It doesn't matter. It's applicable for everybody. And I really like that story because I think it still carries a lot of weight. People are still so convinced that everybody needs this super, super secret program to be able to advance. And most of the time, that's not the case. That's, that's the first one that comes to mind. You mean everybody will benefit from constantly varied functional movements at high intensity? Well, and, and the fact that everybody will benefit from things that are outside of what they're currently doing. You know, whatever your sport is, you're doing that thing a lot. There's still plenty of benefit from stepping outside of that a little bit and rounding off the edges a little, you know. Um, everybody's got those little dark spots. Casting a little light into them uh, is a good thing. What is a book you would recommend everyone listening read? Could be any topic out there. Uh, the War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Um, it's a great little book. Uh, was given to me for my birthday actually last year. Uh, it's been around for a long time. I think it came out in the early 2000s. But it's a short little book and it's just his kind of riffing on what it takes to be a professional creatively. Um, and it's great. I think it's really, really inspirational. I think you're going to give me a good answer on this. What's, what's one, oh, did I lose you? Uh, no, no, we're still there. You good? Okay. Yep. What's one thing that you used to believe to be true? Like you, this is a certainty in my life that you no longer believe to be true. Yeah. I mean, in any aspect of life or we're talking just CrossFit, like, what's no, let's the, go. Any, I, we've got Adrian Bosman on here. We need to get, ooh, man. we need to get deep. Oh, something that I thought was true that I no longer think is true. Your buddy um, David Osorio's was very controversial. No, he's no, it wasn't. He's just he's a goofball. Yeah, <laughs> dude, I, I give him a hard time all the time about that kind of stuff. But anyway, uh, I think that one of the things I've become more aware of as I've gotten older. I used to think that people were more easily categorizable into good or bad. Uh, you know, you had people that were just self-serving and maybe easily cast into a bad, bad light and vice versa. Uh, and I think that that's become a lot more nuanced. My understanding that, you know, that the average person is capable of both and what what could easily easily be attributed to malice should not be initially you know if you can don't 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 look for malice where ignorance is is probably just the first step you know don't look for malice where busyness or apathy is is there um you know i think we're especially now we're so quick to jump on each other and believe that somebody is bad good uh black white etc uh, and I think that's a real shame. Um, you know, people are complex and, and vast. We should give each other more credit. And that's something I feel that I've gotten a lot more in tune with as I've gotten older. Yeah, I like that. I, I forget the quote, but it's like, never attribute to malice what could be explained by stupidity. Exactly, yeah. That's exactly what I was getting at there. Yep. Yeah, very true. All right, last question. What's been your greatest lesson from CrossFit? 
Ooh, uh, consistency, I think. Um, you know, I've been doing CrossFit in one way or another since 2004. And, uh, you know, not every day is a PR. Um, and it's easy sometimes to look into that and say, oh, man, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I should deadlift more or I should be able to do more muscle ups or whatever. Um, but stepping back from the big picture, I'm 35 now. I feel exactly the same as I did in my early 20s. You know, I've, I physically I feel great. I am more than happy to go out and pursue new activities and and jump into whatever it is that's available to me. I don't have any hesitation about that kind of stuff. And that wouldn't be possible without consistency, just sticking to it. Um, you know, that's, that's really been it. And the bigger kind of life aspect of that is I, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have anticipated the life that I've led. Uh, if you would have asked me when I was younger, just getting into this, you know, like I've been lucky enough that I, live in a great part of the world. I have an awesome home gym. Uh, you know, my life is, is really good by any stretch of the imagination. And that was just from consistently showing up and, and, and putting the work in. Um, so I, yeah, I really think consistency is the, the biggest lesson from that. It's really great. I love it. I know you're on here. I don't believe you have anything to promote other than showing up at the CrossFit games. So we appreciate it. Yeah, I, think, no, uh, I do think people would would buy a book by Adrian Bosman <laughs> after talking to you. So maybe next time you can promote the book, the book of Boz. All right. Well, I have to ask you about that. You're the, the expert on writing books. I have no idea how to even start something like that. So, <laughs> well, you know, my rule is 200 crappy words a day. That's all you got to okay. say. Just get there it is, the consistency, right? That's a, there it is, consistency. You just have to all sit right. down and type. Cool. So thank you very much, Boz. We had a lot of questions about you. I hope that answered it, uh, answered them all. Chuck Bennington did want to know, can you still do the L-sit to handstand? Dude, absolutely. I've got uh, many demo skills that I can do once. Don't ask me to do them twice, though. That, you know, that was funny. Like, back in the day at the seminars, they would just be like, people would just do these random acts, and that was always one of them. Boz, during the GHD portion of the, of the day, would demonstrate the else at the handstand. Yeah, that was Dave's favorite thing. He always loved uh, putting me on the spot for stuff like that. <laughs> well, like Coach Glass, what's he say? If you could do a three-minute L-sit, nothing will ever tax your core. So Yeah, and I definitely can do a three-minute L-sit. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we all can. We all can. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, thank you so much, Boz. I appreciate your time. Have a great rest of the day. Hey, man, thanks a lot, Jay. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks again for listening to Best Hour of Their Day. Take a moment, head over to the Apple Podcast app or Spotify or Google or whatever you use and leave us a review. It really means a lot to us and it's what allows us to spread the word. Also, share this with your friends, your family, your coworkers. Tell everybody at the box to listen to Best Hour of Their Day and let us know what we can do to provide you a better experience? Do you have topics you want us to talk about? People you want us to interview? We are here for you, the community. We're here to give back and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Best Hour of Their Day.